Hi, this is Eddie Deason. You're listening to Breaking the Fourth Wall. I was Mandark in Dexter's Laboratory. Ha 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 ha. You are listening to Breaking the Fourth Wall on Realm of the Mist Entertainment. Hey, what's up, everybody? Chris Stolle back with another Breaking the Fourth Wall. I know it's only been a day. Have you missed me? Well, check it out, guys. I'm sitting here with somebody who, quite honestly, always made me laugh as a kid. With trying to fry a snake or just being confused at some of the things that were going on in Superman 2. Ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to be sitting here with Irish Jack O'Halloran. Jack, how you doing today, sir? I'm well, thanks. And yourself? Oh, I can't complain. Um, as as I stated, you know, of course, you're 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 most people will recognize you as I always confuse the name, but it's like Nod. Non. N O N. Non. N O N. Non. Uh, from Superman and Superman Two, he was the silent partner of the trio of uh, uh, Terrence Stamp, you know, General Zod, and all. So. You would recognize him from that, but I mean, you have an impressive list of other uh, other performances as well. Looking here, you know, Dragnet, eighty-seven Dragnet, of course, uh, Hero and the Terror, the Baltimore Bullet, Farewell, My Lovely. This one kind of blew my mind because uh, it's been years since I've seen it, so obviously I don't remember exactly the actors. But you were in King Kong, yeah, with Jessica Lange. Jessica yeah, it was nineteen seventy-six. Yep, it was Jesse's first picture. Yeah. Uh, what? Who did? Who did you play in the movie? Joe Perko. I was the foreman of the all crew. Uh, okay. All right. Said the first words in the movie, actually. Nice. <laughs> We're loading the ship up down there. Yeah. Wow. I Renee mean, and I. That that shows that you you've been involved in the entertainment industry for for many many years. Um, obviously, I'm going to jump around here because you're you're an East Coast you're an East Coast boy, but uh. You know, from uh, Rummersmead, New Jersey. Rummersmead, New Jersey. I I I, I uh, moved over there in uh, in the uh, late fifties. They built the Walt Whitman Bridge. Oh, okay. And everybody fled out of Philly into South Jersey. <laughs> and uh, we moved. Uh, we built a house in uh, Belmar. Okay. Off the Black Horse Pike, and I graduated high school. Went to West Catholic, and then I graduated from Triton Regional High School over in Runnymede. Okay. Yeah, now now they charge you to get back into Philly, and going to Jersey's free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when they when they built that bridge, and they after a certain period of time, they said that that the the toll was going to be removed, but instead of removing it, they upped it. Oh, they keep upping it every year. Every year you see an announcement of like, oh, the to- the tolls are going up another ten cents or another uh, dollar, you know, <laughs> depending on the bridge, you know. So. Somebody's lunch money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everything keeps going up, but the uh, paychecks. But yeah. uh, now here's here's the thing uh, that that uh, a mutual friend of ours was explaining to me that you have kind of an infamous father, Albert Anastasia. Yeah, Albert Anastasia, who was uh, a known 
mafia if, if i'm not he was uh yeah he was probably the most feared guy that ever came into the country he uh ran a little company in new york called murder inc oh wow he was uh partners with charlie luciana and Meyer liner lansky and frank costello and they all came up they all came into the country around the same time wow what, what was that like growing up in that environment I never. I, I grew up in Philly. I, you know, I was a, um, a love affair of World War II love affair. My father was a. Uh, he was stationed, um, and when they were looking for him everywhere in New York, he was in Fort uh, Indiana Gap uh, in the in, a, in an army base there. Okay. And uh, so he spent all. Of, his, of course, he never spent any time. He was in Philadelphia every night, and he. Um, and my mother uh, made Jane Russell look like a boy, so I was uh, I was the uh, results of an affair. Huh. And during World War II. Wow. And uh, he left me down there to be, I was raised by my mother in Philly. And, uh, but he was always there. There was the people around me that looked after me. And, and uh, I was 14 years old when they assassinated him in 57. Wow. And then I got to be very close to Meyer Lansky and Frank Costello and and people like that. I hear a little cat in the background vying <laughs> 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 for attention. <laughs> uh, sounds like my cat whenever she's hungry. Um, all right, so essentially you went, you grew up, uh, grew up uh, in in Jersey and in Philadelphia. Uh, uh, Philly, and then like we moved over to Jersey, and then I, I was raised up and down the East Coast. I spent time in New York. I spent time in Boston. Um, I um, was going to play football for the Eagles, and I uh, they when they brought Joe Q. Hurricane, they, they he traded a championship football team away. So Ali had won the title, and I said to some friends of mine, I can beat that guy, and it's a good idea. So they, I wound up in the gym and. South Philly, and uh, six months later, I embarked on a professional boxing career. Which is where I was heading next, but before I go to the boxing career, Eagles, really? Yeah, well, I actually, the, the Jets grabbed me first, and I, but they, it was at a time in, in that era, you couldn't play pro ball until your class graduated college. You, they didn't have any hardship cases then. Right. You, uh, you had to wait till your age factor, you know, your class would have graduated. So I was, you know, it was like a couple of years I had to wait. And uh, I played um, for the uh, Jets on a, it was like a farm team. There was a team out of Tinicum, New Jersey, out of Tinicum, Philadelphia. Okay. Tinicum, uh, uh, Jimmy, Dick Christie, Dick Christie, Jimmy Christie. Uh, a lot of guys waiting to go into the pros played there. So we played a few games a week. Oh, know, wow. both ways. It was a trip. Nice. Uh, uh, and then I, uh, when I was getting ready to play, I uh, Philadelphia had a great team, and I and I had a lot of friends of mine that were playing down there. So I said to Webb Eubank, I, I would like to go down and play with Philly. He said, Well, you always got a home here, kid. You know, whatever you want to do. And I went down to Philly, and uh, Jerry Wallman had just bought the team, and they had a great team. I mean. Jurgensen was there, Tommy McDonald, and Maxie Bond, and, and the um, 
And then uh, Q. Howard came in and he traded. Traded uh, Jurgensen and McDonald for Norman Sneed and traded five great linebackers to Green Bay for uh, Jim Ringo, who was at the end of his career. Uh, and he uh, he just he traded a championship for trade Maxi Bond and Irv Cross out to L.A. for a kickoff return. Got it. They never really even got. So I said, uh, this is ridiculous. And uh, I come out of a meeting, team meeting one day, and he walked right by myself and Timmy Brown. And I said, hey, Q. Eric, you don't talk to people. And he turned around and said something stupid or something. And I said, you know, take this team and stick it up your ass. And Timmy said, why are you out of trade me? <laughs> so I think Timmy got traded to Baltimore. He was, uh, Timmy was a great ball player. I'm just and saying. I said, I, I go into boxing and, you know, and see, I'm sitting. I'm sitting here I, shaking my head. You, you can't see because we're, we're not on camera. But I'm sitting here shaking my head because all I keep thinking to myself is, you know, the more things change, the, <laughs> the Philly still does that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, Young and Moore spent a lot of days at Pash Young and Moore. In fact, he, the the Rocky movie came from me. I mean, I was uh, I was doing Farewell, My Lovely, and Stallone was did a bit role in the. He came out from New York with Joe Spinelli, who brought a lot of actors from New York to do character, you know, fit fill-in roles for Farewell, My Lovely, and Stallone did one of them, and uh, he was writing the script, Rocky, and he sat down and picked my brain every day. He had never been to Philadelphia. Well, see, that so was I, that was. That was another thing I was going to ask about because uh, it was mentioned to me that that uh, be obviously besides your your professional uh, boxing career, that that you were the main inspiration for the Rocky films, and I was going to definitely was, jump into that. I was, I was the gangster fighter out of Philly, and uh, and I told him, explained the waterfront to him, and you know, and and the gym that they used was the Pash Young gym down at Pash Young and Moore, walking up those steps every day, you know, <laughs> and. Uh, it was, uh, he, he just, he put that whole Philadelphia flavor in there and he got that from me. He had never, like I said, he had never been to Philly before. So he, you know, he's, and, and when he does that thing in the morning, like breaking the raw eggs and stuff. Right. I, I do that every day. I still do it. You still do it? <laughs> yeah. Doctors don't yell at you about cholesterol or anything or, or salmonella? Uh, I, I'll tell you a funny story. They had uh, uh, a, uh, an epidemic for, um, uh, like they call it, uh, a disease. Uh, oh, my God, my brain just went dead. You get, you get it from chickens and stuff and, and, and eggs. To, salmonella. Salmonella, yes. The salmonella scare going on around Philadelphia. So I, I called my doctor on the phone and I said, well, you know, I, I eat these raw eggs every day. He said, how many? I said, you know, between six and a dozen. Depends. He said, every day? I said, every day. He said, listen, if we get a threat here, we want your blood. <laughs> said, you You're probably immune. immune. <laughs> he said, you got to be immune. So. Wow. And you often laugh about that. You know, it's just. Uh... What did the raw egg thing do? For you, I mean, I, I've always wondered that from the days of Rocky, and I mean, I spent uh, a good portion of my twenties and thirties as an independent professional wrestler, and still never thought of drinking a raw egg. <laughs> well, it's, it's pure protein. You know, it's uh, in fact, it wasn't just the eggs. 
the vitamins are actually in the shell. I used to grind the shells and everything up in in the blender. Oh, okay. I used to put the okay. egg and the shells, everything in it. Okay, so you, so you weren't just cracking an egg in a cup and drinking it down. You were you were blending it all up together. Oh yeah, blend it all up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Well, obviously, it helped you out a lot because during the early 70s, it does show that you've spent a lot of time in the boxing ring. As you said, you, tra- you trained for six months uh, and then got your first break. Well, I had to lose. They, they, when I first started, I was playing pro ball, so I weighed like 280. And uh, and I they just had to take a lot of weight off. So I, they brought me down to like 230, 226. My first fight, I fought at 226. I was shaking. I was so so thin. I, you know, I just. Uh, but it was uh, it, it was good. You know, just. Uh, and then I the problem was I I had been boxing about a year, I guess, and I was uh, undefeated. I think 16, 17 fights, and they I did a physical one day, and they told me I had the thing called acromegalia, which is a tumor of the pituitary. Oh man. And he told me that I shouldn't fight anymore. And I said, yeah, right, forget about that. <laughs> so, I, you know, but, you know, and then I didn't, I didn't never got it fixed until 75. I was fighting out in San Diego and I <clears throat> won the California Heavyweight Championship. And the doctor out there became good friends of mine. He and I became very good friends, Dr. Lundin. He said, Jack, if you don't go to Scripps and get a workup done, I'm going to pull your license because this disease will kill you. Right. And I, uh, so I went to Scripps and sure as hell, boy, you know, I, I was, we were supposed to put out at like 10% growth hormone. I was putting out 110, 110. Wow. And they couldn't believe because it, it causes real mental depression and everything. So they couldn't believe how I could even get up to fight. How, how could you get your head ready to fight? So it, uh, but you know, and then about a year after that, I retired, and uh, and I had turned. They had come to do. I, they came to me to do several films in between the Great White Hope in 1968. I turned down. Right. With James right. Earl Jones and the Thomas Crown Affair. McQueen wanted me to do in Boston. I turned it down. And um, then I, you know, they they called me on the phone and they said, you know, they want you to do a picture called Farewell My Lovey with Robert Mitchum. And I said, you know what? I think it's time. So I blame it all on Mitchum. <laughs> well, that that was gonna that was gonna be my question because so far in the conversation, uh, it seems like you were a sportsman. You had very high aspir- aspirations to to be a professional athlete in some way, whether it be football or, as you said, you played pro ball for a while and then obviously a pro- uh, professional boxer. Where did the acting really come in? Was it because you were approached, or was it something you always had interest in? I, you know, I always had an interest in it from the time I was a kid. But, you know, it was like, uh, oh, man, it can't be, you know, like in high school, I can never go into drama, man. I'm, a, I'm an athlete. I played football, <laughs> basketball, track, you know. Right. Uh, I was like uh, like a sissy thing, man. You, you don't do that stuff. Right. I always had the inclination to do it, you know, and I always had this thought pattern. And, um, and I guess it's... It, it, and I learned when I got when I did farewell, and I hooked up with Mitchum, and and I learned that you know, it's something you really can't teach anybody. You either have it or you don't. 
they can teach you different fundamentals and stuff, but uh, the actual ability is just inbred in you. You either either have a natural, de- you know, like I, I remember asking Mitchum one time, what, what is this, what's the definition of a star? And he laughed. And he said, uh, it's a presence, Jack. You know, you either have that presence on screen or you don't. You know, and people like him and Brando and Gregory Peck, and they had this great presence about them. Oh, no matter what question. Picture, no matter what picture they did, you know, like you could. And then there were guys that were students of the of, of acting, and you could go and see a picture, and uh, and Bill Holden was a good actor. But you'd see a picture, and you'd walk outside, and you'd be saying, boy, this guy did this, he did that. What was his name? He didn't have that, that presence where the name stuck in your brain. You know what I mean? <laughs> Whereas if you did the, you went to a Brando picture, it didn't matter what he did. Oh, boy, wasn't Brando great at this? Or wasn't Brando great at that? Or, you know, and there's just actors like that. And then when you work with people like that, and you find that, you know, working with Mitchum, uh, when he came on the set, pins you could hear a pin drop. Right. You know, people had that much respect, and Brando the same way. Brando was a trip. <laughs> uh, you know, and Jimmy Coburn and uh, Omar Sharif was another one who had an amazing charisma. So I was very fortunate, Gene Hackman. I was very lucky to work with some really superior actors, that, uh, and, and I could see that they all had the same. That, a little different makeup here and there, but, uh, you know, they just had that, they were never late. They, 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 they loved what they did. They were very good at what they did. You know, that was, that was something, especially is when you bring up Gene Hackman, cause obviously we're going to lead back to Superman eventually. Um, I, my first exposure to Gene Hackman was Superman, his, his, his interpretation of Lex Luthor. So I always thought he was kind of a goofball, actor as a kid you know because knowing him as lex luther and then seeing some of his serious and and real roles look at the french connection right the french connection or even like a more recent film like uh off the top of my head like a crimson tide and and it's he's he's an extremely good actor yeah it's amazing that he could put on such a, a serious dramatic role in, in in one day and then another day he could chew the scenery with the best of them in a comic book film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely no, no, amazes he was, me. Uh, he was he was quite he was he had a great presence about him. Still does. I mean he's he's retired, but he's Gene Gene's uh, Gene's an interesting guy. Uh, how much of a how 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 much laughs and and all that were on the Superman films, especially. You know, I, I got to imagine, like, I'm trying to put myself in 78 and 80, you know, doing uh, Superman 1 and 2, because I understand they were filmed back to back, you know. Well, we, had, we did them together. We were filming it together, actually. You know, they were, in fact, we had to stop shooting two so they could finish one. They had to release it. Right. And Donner got hooked up into shooting two. We really got into it. And, you know, it's, uh, and we were shooting both films at the same time, using the sets and, and everything, and, uh. It was a, you know, it became like a family affair. You know, you you're working three years on something with a group of people, and uh, uh, it just was, you know, you were you. There were long days. It was we we broke a lot of precedents when we did Superman. We 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 changed a lot of the technology factors and right. did things that no one ever did before, and and it showed because today the film still, you know, forty some years later. 
it still stands out, you know? Oh, yeah, it's, it's still definitely, uh, especially Superman 1 and 2, is like these standard Superman films. Well, today they're getting darker and darker. I mean, the whole thing that we did was so much better, I thought. No. One and two, just great films. Oh, yeah, I mean, the special effects may be better in today's Superman films or, or comic book films in general, but, <clears throat> I mean, you ask anybody who Superman is, for example, and nine times out of ten, the first answer is Christopher, Christopher Reeve. Uh, they, they'll never. I mean, it, 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 it was the first film he ever did, really, as a movie. Right. And uh, it was Richard Donner. Richard Donner got a got a uh, a performance out of that kid that no one. I mean, he no one will ever be Superman and Clark Kent the same. You know, the 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 way he handled both parts was just amazing to go from one to the other. You know. Now, were you were you a comic book fan when you when you were offered the role? Like, were you even familiar with this universe? I was familiar with. Well, everybody read Superman movies when we were kids. I mean, it was the first one of the first comic books. You know, figured that Superman was the first American superhero, right? And um, you know, when they Donner uh, Gene Hackman and I were doing a picture down in France in Spain called March or Die, and they asked us to come up to London. Uh, to talk to Donner, and uh, and I, they had sent me the script and I read it and and he uh, he wanted me to do Non and Gene to do Lex Luthor and um, and he asked me when, when I went up and he said that does it bother you if you do this guy as a mute? I said not at all. In fact, I embraced it because Jackie Gleason was a friend of mine. He did a picture called Gigo. Right. which he won an Oscar for playing a deaf, dumb mute. And I said, if I ever get an opportunity to do a film where I'm doing body language and and uh, and facial expression and stuff, I would gladly do it, you know, uh, just to see if I could pull that off. And, um, and Nan was a perfect character because Terrence was a brutish general. Right. Sarah right. was a man-eater. So somebody had to relate to the kids. So I played this brutish, brutish man as as a child, learning how to work my eyes and you know learning how to you know go through things and it, and it worked. It, it came off very well. I agree with that because you know looking back and thinking about it, and I'll I'll admit you know when when I was setting up for this interview, I went back and I watched the Superman films, you know to to reacquaint myself with you and. I could almost see Nan the way you played him. I can almost see Nan being. Like, if he wasn't around General Zod and, and all, being just, like, the lovable teddy bear. Well, it's just so many people have come up to me, you know, and there was people, there were people I, when I first started doing conventions, and people would come up and say, oh, my God, you actually talk. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and the guy would say, or someone would say to me, you know, your character scared the hell out of me, but I loved your character, you know. <laughs> So I, it, uh, so I, uh, evidently, I got away with what I was trying to accomplish. Oh no, it, it absolutely did. You did sold well. Like, like I said in the intro, I used to laugh at uh, watching watching non, you know, pick up the snake that was already torched and and just you know staring at it, trying to get the eye beams to work. I was trying to make my lunch, man. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it used I to see. make me laugh even as a kid, and I still chuckle at it when I watch it now. You know, all these years later. Um. But 
yeah, I mean, like, how how weird was it doing doing the film? You've got this great talent, uh, you know, uh, in in Terrence Stamp and in, in Gene Hackman, you know, surrounding you, plus young up and comers like Christopher Reeve, and I mean, like the sets and and the script and everything. Was it? Did it almost like the best way I could describe this this question is? Uh, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and when they were filming, you know, Star Wars 1977. A yeah. lot of people thought it was just goofy, silly, was not going to do anything. Did that? Did you guys have that same kind of? No, you know, actually, you can tell when you're doing a film, you know, whether it's going to click. Right. Yeah? And because of the cast that we had, we had a great cast. And, and even the character roles were filled in by great English actors. I mean, Terrence Stamp is a great actor. Right. Sarah, Sarah is a very good actress. But the people, the old elders, were Trevor Howard and, and some of the old dynamite actors from, from England. Um, so, we, you know, it was, it was kind of, there was a great ambiance, you know. Right. And, right. and, I, and I remember when we were, um, they, they were, like I said, they were working on doing two too much. And Warner Brothers came out and said, you know, that uh, maybe they don't pick up two because they were being late showing Superman one and, and saw kinds being Alexander was a very clever guy. So he said, well, you know, uh, you guys want to, you're telling me that I can get another distributor. And they said, well, maybe, uh, maybe. Yeah. So he, he, he set them all down in a screening room. I'll never forget this at Pinewood studios. And we were sitting in the back watching this because they showed the fight scene. Okay. And these guys couldn't get the rubber bands off their money fast enough. <laughs> I mean, they, it, it was because it was so brilliant. You know, the flying shots where we weren't on wires and stuff. And people couldn't believe how we were flying under bridges and around buildings. You know, and the, and the fight scenes were done terrifically uh, over Metropolis and all. Right. So it, it just came out. And, and to sit there and watch it and say, wow, man, geez, you know. This is this picture is going to be unbelievable, and and of course it was, you know. And like I said, it's still a standard. I oh mean, yeah, I no, mean, j- just think about people like my kids' age. I have a, a ten and an eleven year old, and I mean, even they quote Superman too. You know, kneel before Zod, and yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I go to screenings different places, and and children are. Again, like you're saying, nine, ten years old, they just they're in awe of the picture, you know. That's so, and and all these Marvel pictures and stuff, they they don't compare to it for some reason. It just it's uh, works out pretty well. It worked it, it worked well, and we're we're looking actually to um, because of the hologram technology today. The technology is so good that we're 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 in discussions with. We're waiting for. The whole merger thing with Warner Brothers to finish and take, you know, and settle down with AT&T because we want to go back and bring Christopher back. And we have a great storyline to bring the three villains and him back. Wow. And do a couple more Supermans, which which would open the door again. And and for for Warner Brothers, it would be great because Marvel's killing them right now with all these other, you know, out of space things that are being done. Well, I think I think the, I think you hit the nail on the head when we were talking about like the newer Supermans compared to 
what what you guys did, you know, back in the seventies and eighties, is I think it misses that levity and and that heart that that your films had. Well, you know, Superman would never go around killing people. You know, I mean, not in in our pictures anyway. And it was they weren't this dark. These these are very dark. These pictures, you know, they. The way that they've uh, they've taken Superman and, and made him almost like a menacing character, right? And they've taken away that all American way, man. You know, it's uh, it was it was so obvious that he was there for Earth to, to help the people of Earth, not to not to to croak people. And even the villains that he went after, you know, he put him in jail. He didn't kill him, right? Well, that that that's kind of where I was going with it. It was like, uh, you know, it's very dark and very serious. It, it kind of I, I don't want to use the term campy because campy belongs to like '66 Batman, but it was it was lighthearted. There was there was humor and and innocence to the films that Donna, I think are heavily well, missed. Well done. I mean, Donner was a great director. Richard Donner. If you see the Donner cut compared to Lester Superman two. It's a much better film. Oh, I own it. Yeah, the, the Donner, the Donner cut. Yeah, much better film. So, of course, everything that we're talking about here, from your boxing career to the movies and everything, you have have uh, discussed all this on numerous occasions on podcasts and interviews throughout your career. But you have also put out a book. Oh, Family Legacies is is a very good read. What what we did was, I. Um, it goes back in history and, you know, tells instead of just having like a mob picture, it shows how organized crime in the very beginning, you go back in the 1900s, the early 1900s, um, the government, industry, unions and organized crime were partners for a long time. Right. They, they, right. A lot of the illicit monies that were made in the beginning, were put back into the growth of the country. You know, like my father controlled all the docks and uh, they, 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 all the unions were, they had people, they, they created jobs for people. They put everybody to work because their, their main deal was gambling, extortion, loan sharking. So if you didn't have money, how could you pay them? So they made sure you went to work. Right. You know, uh, and it, it was, it was a whole different, scenario until the 60s when the Kennedys came in and, and, and the drug business started and just a whole different um, whole different things have changed so much in our society so we uh, what I've done is that we've written a book that starts with my father's death and ends with Kennedy's death and I tell the truth about a lot of things that went on in the country and how the changes came about I've always said that one of the things that seems to be missing in the world, especially in places like Philadelphia, you know, and I'm sure I'm sure you know this for yourself was was the influence of the of the mafias, because uh, even though, yeah, the mafias were were, you know, criminals. I mean, we had, we had deals when I was a kid uh, running the streets in Philly and, and we we controlled the city and, and we uh, uh, Frank Rizzo was part of our our, our deal. You know, I remember him when he was a cop. I remember when he became captain. I remember when he became commissioner. I remember when he became mayor. You know, and his brother was the head of the fire department. Right. And, you know, you had uh, Clarence Ferguson. You had, you know, there was a lot of, but they, there was a, there was a camaraderie there. You know, we didn't push or, or, or sell drugs and shit. We were just gambling and, 
and stuff that we did, the unions and all, but there was a, the neighborhoods were safer. That's where I was going with it is you wouldn't have put up with a lot of the crap. You guys. I lived I lived in Southwest Philadelphia, 53rd and Florence. You wouldn't even want to go in that neighborhood. Right. (laughs) When I was a kid, we never locked our front doors. You know, people, kids played in the street from sun up to sundown. You could put a baby pram out front of your house. No one ever bothered it. People used to sleep in their backyards because there was no air conditioning. In the summertime, it so humid and stuff. People actually camped out in the backyard. Right. And they put cots out there and stuff. And they, you know, netting things around for the mosquitoes. But they, you know, it was, uh, it was a whole different culture, you know. It was like neighborhoods were taken care of by, by people. You know, you had neighborhood bars every corner. There was like a little bar, like a little neighborhood bar. And there was always a bookmaker there. And if someone needed 50 bucks or something for an anniversary or something, there was always somebody that had a, a way because people didn't go to banks in those days. How many people back in the 50s and 60s had actually had credit cards even? I don't think there was even nece- uh, necessity for it back then. Well, they, you know, it was a whole different, it was a different, whole different environment. And people were there to help each other, you know. They, uh, I, I remember when they changed the law for bookmaking, and they made they made bookmaking and number writing a felony. Right. And, and what they did in one swoop, because you had housewives who stayed at home and were answering the telephone and writing numbers down, taking bets, and somebody would come by and pick up the slips and take them into the house and all. But they were getting paid 150 bucks a week cash. That money went into the neighborhood, went to the local stores, right? Went, went to the, the the to the environment. You understand? Mm-hmm. What sneakers and bicycles and stuff for kids and stuff, and that was taken away. Woof! One swoop. When they made it a felony to to write numbers and stuff, and you, people were getting six months, and so they it just it, it knocked a lot of that out of the box. Well, that, that's again, that's what I was meaning. Like you, you look at you look at the way neighborhoods are nowadays, especially some of the very crime ridden neighborhoods where oh. drugs are rampant and and violence are happening. So you hear it on the news all the time, where people yep. are are getting assaulted. Well, there's For- weapons everywhere. I mean, you, you, you see, I tell you, the one people ask me this question a lot, and the one one word in our society that has been totally eradicated is the word respect. Yeah. People don't respect themselves. How are they going to respect anybody else? You know, and you have kids that stay in house. They don't go out anymore. They're on the computer. Mm-hmm. There's people that don't even talk. They talk. To, they text people back and forth. They don't even talk to people on the phone. They text each other. There's no, no communication. People no. don't have awareness of what is really going on in the world, oh, other yell, than I, what I, they get off of a computer. I yell at my girl all the time for that. It's like you want to have a conversation, call me. You want to send yeah. me. You want to send me a grocery list while I'm out at the store. Text me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, pick up, have communication. They don't communicate. People don't. So what they do is they envision what people are like. They don't have an actual living experience of people. Uh, do you understand what I'm saying? 
Oh, you're you're not wrong at all. I've always made that that statement to a lot of people when it comes to like texting. Uh, is sometimes you know you wind up in an argument with somebody because they mistook what you said because they can't hear the inflection, the tonality of of how you mean something. Yeah, I mean, they just don't, they can't read people. They don't know what they what they. You got to look people in the eye, you know. And it's I, I mean I don't know. That's the way I always did business when I was a kid. I you, I want to see your I want to see you eyeball eyeball. Right. You know. But I was brought up in the streets, you know, so I, you know, I, I, I understood, I understood the, uh, what you would call mafia or familiar way of life, you know, uh, I, and I understand the word respect. And even when I was a, a young, young kid, I mean, you respected your elders. Mm-hmm. I mean, you never, I would never go home and say that I got hit by a nun in school. Was I get hit? Would you must have done something awful bad? Wham! You get hit again. You know, <laughs> so you just never, you never did anything. But I mean, you had, I mean, classrooms. I, I remember in my grammar school, we had classrooms with ninety children in them. But you could hear a pin drop. Right. I mean, those nuns—they controlled those rooms, boy. They'd knock your head off. You, you know, you, you were. It was, it was a whole different, whole different environment. You know, it was a. The learning process was a lot different because you, you you learn things in a different manner, but you learned, you know. And then if you didn't if you didn't pass a grade, they'd leave you back. They don't do that anymore. Well, that, they that, push kids right through now. Well, that that was something that's that was something I was going to say is that, that the the world has changed so much now because you know like when you use the term respect, I think part of the respect of parents and respect of teachers was the fact that you did have a bit a healthy bit of fear. And kids nowadays they don't have that. Like back then a nun could smack you with a ruler and your parents would beat the hell out of you if you'd mouth off to them. Nowadays you can't raise your voice to a kid without DHS being called on you. Oh, it's unbelievable. Oh no, it's I mean it's it's totally 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 changed. You know, mm-hmm. I, it's you know you just I, I don't know. I always learned to say thank you, no thank you, and all that stuff when I was a kid. I had respect for elders and stuff. You know, you if it was an older person, you helped them across the street. You helped, you know, you, you know just a whole, whole different kettle of fish. The word respect, period, across the board, has been taken out of our society, unfortunately. I think it needs to make a comeback. You know, with, with all these <laughs> with all, with all these retro things today, <laughs> with all these retro things today, people putting on seventies clothes and you know, uh, music starting to re emulate things from like the eighties. When's respect come back? <laughs> you, you would, you know, God. I, I mean, I I remember when I was when I was uh, I kind of was uh, thirteen, fourteen years old, and uh, we I was involved in uh, in Danny and the Juniors, okay, singing group. Because we sung on the corners, you know, uh, harmonized stuff, you know. Do wop. And 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 I remember when we did uh, the first the first record uh, was was uh, at the hop, and and they were putting the song together, and it wasn't actually the deal wasn't done. I I went home to my mother. I said, I said I'm quitting school, man. I'm gonna be a recording star. And she said, Yeah. (laughs) Guess what? Your recording days just stopped. You're finished school. You know, and and Artie Scott Tease's mother did the same. There was a couple of us that were in the group, and you know, and 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 the people used to call. They'd call the cops on you when you were out there singing too much late at night. And then when the record was cut, they were inviting you in your house. Oh my God, <laughs> stars! You know? 
I mean, it was a, it was kind of a, it was a whole change of an environment. I mean, we used to King Sessing Playground down off of uh, King Sessing Avenue and Chester Avenue. Uh, we would harmonize in the bathrooms with Lee Andrews and the Hearts. Oh wow! You know the the black groups would be there and the white groups, and there was there was a there was a, a an understanding of mutuality there. You know, uh, there was just there were so many groups in in Philadelphia at that time. It was a big deal. You had Frankie Avalon and Fabian and and, and Buddy Greco and uh, you know I mean shoosh. North Philadelphia had had groups up there, and West Philadelphia and South Philadelphia, you know, everybody was there was groups everywhere. Bobby <laughs> Rydell, you know, wow, American wow. Bandstand was a big deal. Hey, you keep yeah. you keep throwing it out. You're talking legends in this city, legends. That was yeah. We we were all part of that, you know. That's what we grew up with. We were. It was all. It was the whole environment. I mean, Andrew Lee Johnson. It was his name, Lee Andrews and Hearts. Those guys, they wrote, and they were part of the payola era. They they wrote like 14 great hits, and they were still driving around in an old station wagon. But <laughs> they never sold the money, you know what I mean? Right. They, they lost their bass singer, Angus. i never forget, he got locked up for a B&E because he didn't have any money. Jeez. You know? And these guys had long, lonely nights, teardrops. I mean, they, they, they had some great, great songs. That uh, you know, it was just it was uh, it was a, it was a heck of an error. There's no two ways about that, boy. Connie Francis and God, all the I mean, the, the, the just one one talent after another. Pat Boone, all <laughs> the people, you know. Wow, you're 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 making me stroll down memory lane. Like every name <laughs> you're Every name you're mentioning, I remember play, uh, being played in my house growing up because that that was my mom's music growing up. You know what I mean? That was that was. I, I, I can remember when I was a kid. I, when I was a kid, you know, black people couldn't go past South Street into South Philly. Right. So there was a borderline there, you know. Right. And there was a club there at Broad and South where Billie Holiday used to they used to smuggle her in the city to sing. We used to go <laughs> through the kitchen. And, and watch her. I was like 11 years old. You know, and she was so unbelievable talent. Just un, an incredible. Then they would smuggle her back out of the city because she she was always in trouble with drugs and shit. Right. Man, oh, man. What a great entertainer. My God. I'll tell you what, you're entertaining the hell out of me. I can't believe I'm sitting here talking to the, unmute, uh, the muted non. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, you know, uh, I, I guess I guess the big question left is, is uh, what's next for Mr. Jack O'Halloran? Well, we got Family Legacy. If people go to to familylegacythenovel dot com, the book is there. We're getting ready to make a film. I'm writing three more books, and we're going to do a television series as well out of it. So it's it's time that um, that some truth was told about what's what actually went on in our society and the changes, you know. There's a lot of changes, and I'm 76 years old. I've seen a lot of changes in our society from the time I was a kid till today. Right. Well, I gotta, I gotta ask. I know, I know, uh, I know the uh, the first book is, is kind of heavy, dealing with dealing with some of the darker sides of, of, like you were saying, from from the day your dad died to uh, the day Kennedy died. Uh, any of them going to have a little bit of uh, uh, humor to them? Because uh, 
sitting here having a conversation with you for 42 minutes. I think I think you got a little bit of comedian in you. <laughs> uh, you know, we they, they all have there was humor in all of all those guys. They, they you know they were they they were some uh, they had their quirky ways, but they were they it was cleverly they lived life right life. You know, they 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 had uh, it's like my father. They talk about murder incorporated. Well, but they 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 never killed innocent people. Right. It was all inner gang, all interrelated in their own world. You understand? I mean, they, the things that they did was about how to make money and, you know, they, and how to make your neighborhood flourish and how to make the people around you make money. So that, so people had a growth pattern and it was, uh, it was just, uh, I don't know. I had a lot of fun times with some of those guys. There were a lot of funny guys, boy. I mean, a lot of comedy, a lot of the stuff you watched, watched them do certain things. That, you know, the uh, the respect that they commanded was amazing. It's absolutely astounding. I mean, you go into places and you, people people would whisper, say, "Oh my God, do you know who who eats in that restaurant? Do you know who's hanging out on that corner?" <laughs> you know what I mean? People used to line up to see who was getting out of the cars and stuff. It was a uh, they were, um, it was, it was great. I mean, I, I enjoyed being raised there. I enjoyed the East Coast, Boston. I love Boston. I love New England. Uh, North Jersey was a trip. It was a, just a, it was like a whole different, whole different entities, you know? Plants. South Jersey, they ran across the bridge like, wow, like they're getting free into another land. <laughs> you know? <laughs> People, people infested South Jersey overnight. It was like. Phew. Any plans of returning to the East Coast? Yeah, I go back and forth all the time. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I family still in Jersey. Okay. I'm still lives down the down by uh, Ocean City, right outside of Atlantic City. There. Okay. That's uh, you know, I mean, I I can remember my summers we spent. Our summers in Wildwood. I mean, you, you you always worked when you were kids. I mean, we never never did I not have a job in the summertime, busting dishes or selling newspapers on the beach or setting pins in a bowling alley. One time I had three jobs going on. I was I think it was like uh, and I wasn't even old enough to have. I had to forge my papers to get working papers. <laughs> you know the the. Uh, I remember the first IRS thing they sent to my house, and they said, "You sure you have the right child?" You know, <laughs> wasn't old enough to be paying Social Security and stuff. You know, pay, of getting income tax it was a, uh, but you know, it, that was part of that was part of the life, the vibrant life. I mean, there was a time Wildwood, New Jersey, in the summertime, they had the greatest entertainment. I mean, everybody played in Wildwood. Sammy Davis, Dean Martin, everybody. Right. They they had one one Atlantic Avenue had so many clubs on it, with all these different people, Johnny Mathis, everybody played down there. You know, all the clubs. There was always wild entertainment going on. You could, you know, Marvin Gaye, the Platters, everybody. So you, you didn't miss out on anything. It was all, and like I said, there were so many groups from Philly. In, in their own environment. 
It was kind of Atlantic City. I, mean, I watched Atlantic City grow up. <laughs> and I watched it deteriorate itself as well. Yeah. So never put gambling there. It was the worst thing they ever did. I agree with that. Uh, I look at I look at the Jersey Shore in general, and, and you look at places that that uh, thrive, like Wildwood still thrives, and uh, oh, Cape May, and you know, Cape Ocean May, City. Like Ocean City. Ocean City was a dry. Ocean City was the wettest dry city I ever saw. <laughs> it was a dry. It was a, there was no bars in Ocean City. You couldn't sell, but yet if you were the, if you were the trash man, there was so many so many beer bottles and stuff in the trash hole. You know. Let's say there wasn't any drinking going on down there. That's for sure. That's it. But then, then like you mentioned, when you go to like Atlantic City, and it, it it's it's like driving from a nice neighborhood to the ghetto. Oh, so the, I mean, I, I remember when Margate was was I mean was a primo like the Beverly Hills of of, of South Jersey there, boy. And that's all gone. You know, Atlantic City was a when they put the casinos in, they dispersed. A quarter of a million people mm. moved them around, took them away from their houses. And stuff. And they just it was very badly done. Not good. That that definitely sounds like something else you'll probably touch in one of your future books. Yeah, like you I said, mean, the, I, gaming be told. Stayed in, gaming was was put in Vegas for a reason. It was in the middle of the desert, you know. Right. Uh, and it didn't affect people's, but they have gambling. They have casinos in Philly, Chicago, every major city, and and it's an addiction gambling. So you have people that are in those casinos. They're 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 betting their their mortgage payments. Right. You know, it just it's it, it you can't make it that accessible to them. And they yelled at us when we had bookmaking and and pushed numbers and stuff like that. You know, for people spending money on, but but they made sure people won. I mean, when 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 you when we were doing when we were doing numbers and stuff, you had a thousand to one chance of winning. When they come out with a lottery to make this legal legal bookmaking, you know what the chances of you winning the lottery are? Twenty five in the one. A little different than a thousand to one, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> man, oh man. Well, I think I think the major secret behind it is. Uh, the, the, of course, they cracked down on the uh, on the quote unquote illegal bookkeeping because they couldn't tax it. Well, yeah, but here they are. They 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 put all this all this froth out there that they're going to put legal, you know, lotteries and stuff in. And the lotteries were supposed to help the agent and different things. No one ever sold that money. Yes. Trash was still piling up in cities. What's up? What's they didn't put the money into the cities the way it was supposed to go. What do I so always see? Where's the money at? What do I always see? It's supposed to benefit older Pennsylvanians, at least the Pennsylvania lottery. They don't benefit anybody. <laughs> you know, they, they, they when they when they put gambling in New Jersey, they had to go to Florida to get the old retired people to, to vote it in. Meyer Lansky did that. <laughs> because they couldn't get they, they couldn't get it passed. The first time when it had that because it didn't was supposed to benefit elderly people. They never saw a dime out of any of that. Jesus. You know? And that's casinos all over the place were supposed to be to relieve the budgets of the cities and everything. And it's the other way around. Jesus Christ. You stop and think about, you know, this this 
people like in Detroit, that when they took the motor industry out of Detroit, a lot of jobs went out the window, boy. Basically, people, basically all Detroit's economy went with them. Right out the door. Yeah. And yet they have a casino downtown, <laughs> you know, and people down there trying to, trying to, trying to make the, trying to win, 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 win. And they, you can't win. Listen, I, I never gambled in casinos because I come from them families and, 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 and it was first thing Meyer Lansky ever told me. He said, listen, son, why do you think we own casinos? You're not, they're not there to win. We're there to make money. Right. You know, it's just and, like and, it's just like carnival games. They're rigged against you. I, you, you, but you because you're going to keep going back and back and back. Even if you win, I remember a guy called me on the phone one time. He said, "My God, man, I just hit that big, you know, the the big wheel. Where it was like a four hundred thousand dollar win on that big spinning wheel they have every casino." Right. So I hit the big wheel, man. Unbelievable. I said, "Yeah, take the money, go to the window, stick it in a box, and leave it there till you leave." <laughs> well, what are you talking about? I said, you'll give it back. People give it back. Sure as shit, and boy, by the time he left there, he had about 150000 left. Oh. And they drug it. One of the, one, here, old Vegas, now old Vegas, where you wouldn't think of committing a crime in the old days, believe me. Right. It's only one way in and one way out. But you know what the biggest, the biggest earning guys in, in, in the city were? Car dealerships. Because people were hawking their cars to get back home. They would, they would wow. Stay. They would gamble. And they, they had to sell their cars to get back out of the city. It was, I used to laugh my ass off. Man, it gives a whole new <laughs> meaning to uh, what happens if Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, you could buy some great cars in Vegas years ago. Wow. <laughs> it was, it was a gas. But, you know, it's just, uh, the changes are just, you know, like who wants... Vegas today, the crime in downtown Vegas is terrible. Well, again, the crime anywhere. Uh, yeah, anyway, uh, not, right. to, not, not to hit on personal things, but I, I told you before we got on air what happened to my coworker. Yeah, no, and that happens all over the city. You know, you know and it, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like they did, I'll tell you what, I was sitting here at home watching New Year's Eve in, in Las Vegas, right? Right. And it was packed. I mean, there were so many people on the strip. I said, boy... That's a pickpocket's dream. How many pickpockets you think there are over in that crowd right now working it? <laughs> you know what's funny though is is, is there really pickpockets? Because I mean nowadays, like they just you know digitally scan your card in your back well, they, pocket. They do that. They can walk by you, and if you have if your wallet's in your thing, you're right. They can side what they call sideswiping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And next thing you know, they have the access to your information, and they're ordering yeah. shit on eBay in ten minutes. Go. Yeah, yep. <laughs> it's absolutely That's outrageous. Absolutely right, man. Oh man, Jack, I'll tell you what, man. Uh, I'm I'm enjoying this conversation immensely. I've got to have you back on, not just to promote the books, but I just I would just love to sit here and listen to more of like the world before to as opposed to the world now. You know what I mean? <laughs> if that makes sense. They can One thing they can see, they can't tell me what I didn't live. You know. Right. And then one of the things about the book is this: what I did, I lived this book. And so they, you know, a lot of people write a lot of books. It's just like you see this picture they did, the Irishman. Yeah, yeah. Fifty percent bullshit. I knew Frank Phelan very well. He's from Philly. Okay. Frank was from Philly. I knew Frank well. Frank never killed Jimmy Hoffa. 
He never killed Joey Gallo. He killed some people, but he, I mean, Russell Buffalino, I knew well. Russell, Russell was probably the most connected Don to Washington, D.C. He was a political guy. Okay. Very well connected politically. Keysport, Pennsylvania, a little, little town in western Pennsylvania where there's a steel town. And, and, and I, when I was a kid, I was taken out there and I sat there and watched. On a Monday morning, limousines used to pull up alongside of each other and envelopes would pass through the windows. <laughs> deals that were going to be done in Washington. I, I said, wow, what is it? He said, that's Washington. They're coming up. They're both, bang, bang. You know, I said, wow, what a trick. You know, I was being educated when I was a kid. See, I think I think the world needs to hear your education. So, guys, make sure you're checking out Jack's book. Uh, of course, it's available. It's available uh, in local bookstores, Barnes and Noble, uh, Amazon.com, stuff like that. Dot com, yeah. You can get a Kindle, uh, sure. Yeah, it's all there. Oh, uh, there there is digital copies of it as well for yeah. Kindle and and Nook and all the other crazy. Uh, don't believe in paper books anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a trip, boy, I'll tell you. Nice. Jack, why, where else can people get in contact with you if they want to know more or, or uh, have access to other uh, any other projects that you're involved with or, or whatever? You know, they just have to look up. Um, I'm on IMD Pro and I'm on the Amazon, the, the you know, familylegacythenovel.com is a site that's mine. FamilyLegacyTheNovel.com. I'll make sure that is in the description down below, guys. You can just click on that. It'll take you straight to the page. Uh, Jack, this has been a wonderful experience. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I absolutely did. Oh, no. You're, you're from my city there. <laughs> well, the next time, next time you're in town, we'll go out for a cheesesteak. How's that sound? Hey, listen. You know, that's another thing. Pat's Steakhouse, right? Right. Pat's do you, do you know that? Do you know that the first twenty years that that guy was in business, he was selling horse meat. Was he really? Oh yeah, he got busted for it. I'm so glad I was the Geno's guy. Like, I mean, <laughs> before Geno's was even open, and people used to line up around the block because it were great sandwiches. <laughs> Yeah, you I know, heard. I heard. It's totally off topic, but I heard that McDonald's got in trouble for pretty much the same thing. Well, McDonald's was a joke from the beginning. Right, but, but it, I mean, it, like back in the eighties, we had in Southwest Philadelphia. There was a place called Lou's Hoagies, over Fifty Second and Baltimore Avenue. Okay, Lou's, Lou's Hoagies and steaks, the cheese steaks and hoagies. Oh my God, people lined up around the block for these submarine sandwiches. I mean, you're talking <laughs> real hoagies. Philadelphia, you go to Philadelphia, you you got a real hoagie. And a real cheesesteak, you know. You know when I when I lived out in Colorado for about ten years, I used to I used to try to explain this to people, like you don't understand. There was a corner deli uh, on every street, oh, and yeah. when you ordered, you know, lunch meat sandwiches or hoagies, you didn't get the crap you see in Subway or Quiznos <laughs> or whatever. Bingo. You you know you got something that yeah, like, it's a real deal, yeah, <laughs> on a good Italian. But you know what the best part was. The bread in Philly was great. Amoroso. They were the bakers, boy. Yep. I remember when they when I was a kid, boy, we used to go down and they that that they made unbelievable bread. The bread was you can't get that in California. You can't get that anywhere. Well, they have sourdough bread out here. You know what I mean? They don't. There's very few. A couple restaurants 
actually imported. And you know what it is? The water. Something yeah. about the water. And it's uh, But the bread in Philly with the hard crust, oh, my God, the rolls. Are, oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> so when you it's coming like, back out? <laughs> it's, it's like when you went to the bakery as a kid and you got those crumb buns and stuff. <laughs> you don't find them anywhere anymore. Cinema uh, buns and crumb. Oh. I, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what, man. Uh, again, when I was living out in Colorado, there there was a couple decent bakeries out there and, and all, but uh, none of them can make a butter cake to save their life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Some, you some got of the... spoiled. You got spoiled a little bit in the East Coast. Oh yeah, spoiled. oh yeah. Born and raised, man. I come from a military family. My mother's from Colorado. My father was from Brooklyn, New York, and I was raised in Philly. So <laughs> there, you go. there you go, son. Yeah, you know, huh. so, yeah. I, I I remember searching around. I spent the first two years of uh, of my time in Colorado looking for any place to claim they had a Philly cheesesteak just to compare. Yeah, right. You got a lot of luck. You got a lot of luck there. Bobby, let me tell you, I've been I've been in Denver. Listen, <laughs> good luck. There's there's one I, I will say this much and I I don't even know if she's still in business. Uh not too long before I left there was a uh, little place out in uh our uh Wheat Ridge, Colorado, just outside of Denver. Uh mm-hmm. opened up by a uh, little old lady who uh used to be a Philly cop and also was part of the Mummers. And uh the Mummers, Jesus, that was another crew. Uh-huh. They're still going strong. Not like they used to be, but they're still going strong. But uh she uh she opened up a little cheesesteak shop and she would order the the ribeye steak from from the Philadelphia factory and the Amarosa rolls. She yeah. gave an authentic Philly cheesesteak. So if you're ever in uh, Wheat Ridge and if she's still around, look up large margins. <laughs> well, it's like Scrapple, you know. Oh, I love me some Scrapple. Big <laughs> Scrapple, and when people found out what was in Scrapple, they said, "What? You people ate that?" I said, "What are you talking about? Ate it." It was a delicacy, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> Scrapple eggs on Sunday? Whoa, come on, boy. <laughs> you know what? I, it drives my ex-wife nuts because my kids, that's our thats our Sunday tradition, man. You know, scrapple and scrambled eggs. And, and <laughs> you know, my, my ex and my current both were like, God, I'm not touching that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh- you're making me laugh. <laughs> yeah, this has been a great show. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much, Jack. And guys, if you enjoyed this video in any capacity, hit that thumbs up button, like, share, comment, subscribe, check out all the other great uh, podcasts at Realm of the Miss Entertainment, and of course, all the uh, gaming stuff over at uh, Sounds Dicey Gaming. And if you prefer this in audio format only, you can always check us out on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. One more time, Mr. O'Halloran, thank you so much. This has been a blessing and an honor, and I cannot wait to sit down and talk to you again. And I promise you, I just got paid from work today. As soon as my check clears tomorrow, I'm ordering your book. <laughs> I want to read this now. I'm ordering your book at tomorrow morning. <laughs> I guarantee you. Excellent. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Jack O'Halloran, thank you very much, and I will catch you on the next Breaking the Fourth Wall.